there's a bunch of words you probably have heard but don't realize were COP events. Mm-hmm. So it was the Kyoto Accords. Okay. That was a conference of the parties in Kyoto where the Japanese hammered out this agreement, right? So the Kyoto Accords were, and of course the United States famously walked away from it. For Franklin Mattis, Franklin Public Radio, anywhere on the internet, WFPR.FM, and in the local Franklin FM Radio dial 102.9. Here in studio, I mean really in the radio set of the studio, not just in the studio building today, with my climate guy, Ted McIntyre. Isn't this a fun place to be? Oh, Steve, this is the coolest thing I've seen in a dog's age. It really is fantastic. This is the first time we've actually, so we've made a whole bunch of shows. Yep. We've never actually been physically in each other's presence while we recorded. This is a first. Other than via Zoom. Other than via Zoom. (laughs) And here we are with this very wonderful technology all around. I feel like a babe in the woods here. <laughs> you know, a kid uh, in a candy store. A kid in a candy store. <laughs> so we'll check your pockets if, before you leave. If, <laughs> I, if I drift out of sound range, let me know. I will lean back into the mic and be, be present. But this yes. is really cool, and it's great to to be here. This is really fun. Yeah, this is part of, certainly the studio is a community service. I'll just wax and pontificate on that a little bit. For the listeners, bear with us. If you haven't heard, Franklin Public Radio is a service of Franklin TV. It's a community service. I, as part of Franklin Matters, is bringing, I am bringing what I do in the digital news world into that so that in the long term, we'll have one web portal, franklin.news. You'll still have Franklin TV, Franklin Public Radio, Franklin Matters, but we'll have the one portal that'll bring everything together. And you'll be able to watch one of our three channels because we're a PEG, public educational government channel. And we also have YouTube channels, also three for each of those. Listen, as in the radio, or a podcast because, oh, by the way, a lot of the radio shows, other than the music ones, and that's a separate story. We'll get into that sometime are also podcast-enabled, and then read the digital news on Franklin News, get the daily newsletter, and get it all together because it's all Franklin in one place. In, in an age where newspapers, local newspapers, are dying, a mechanism for local reporting, Steve, you do a great job of being at every town meeting seeming to be at everyone to be I, it, it, it seems like you are uh, that's a great service because i mean information is critically important in this day and age and especially in a time where print media is going i mean i don't get the globe paper globe anymore no right no we get the sunday globe we gave just too much paper and and so it's just the shift in media consumption and the Big word about epistological. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you learn? How do you find right. stuff? Is changing so fast, and it's so important. That's why I think these podcasts are wonderful. What you're doing is because, other than this gorgeous studio we're in, most podcasts you can start up your own podcast pretty easily. Right? You can. And it, it's it's uh, there was a book Al Gore wrote, mm-hmm. right? Of uh, one of several. Al Gore, if you don't know him, I'll, we can mm-hmm. talk about who he is later. But anyway saying that podcasting is the equivalent of 
a printing press in Benjamin Franklin's time. Absolutely. Right? Relatively low barrier to entry, uh, impactful. Uh, everyone can do it. It's a marketplace of ideas. People listen to what they like. And we hope that in the stuff that we're doing, we're providing some kind of service that people appreciate. And so there you go. Here we are mm-hmm. at the at the dawn of the new digital digital age. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, because it was in 2006 that I went to the first PodCamp Boston. It was one free in Boston and talking about podcasting, video blogging, et cetera. It's like, let me go find out more about this because I was just starting mm-hmm. anticipating what I was going to do in Franklin Matters. So I went there and I realized I can do this. I mean, I take – I've spent many years in the corporate world taking notes, whether it's a project manager or a manager, and then sending the notes out immediately after the meeting so that, oh, by the way, you would remember what you just committed to and you were going to bring it back next week or two weeks or next month so you'd have it. Well, I can do that. I can bring my laptop to a meeting, put a modem on it, type the notes, post it to a blog, which was free <laughs> – Still is the blog is still free. Obviously, there's you know there's a freemium to it as well. You are the product one, but that's beside the point. The info is there, and then it certainly has evolved over the time. So that for many many years, totally less than a hundred dollars. I mean, the little recording device, you know, it's a sixty buck item. Uh, Website storage, you know, things have come down over time. The laptop, clearly, I had already had for personal use. The modem was on my bandwidth, et cetera. So accessible? Yeah. Yeah, almost anybody can do it. If you have quiet space and an idea and the tools, and the tools are getting smaller and more powerful all the time, you can do it. That's in, so it's almost an encouragement, dear listener. If you're listening and you have the itch, you can do it. Don't be shy, mm-hmm. right? Send us a note and we can coach you or something, right? Absolutely. It's, it's a, yeah. uh, but I guess the thing I wanted to mention, you said you went to a podcast conference in Boston. Uh, maybe correct me if you heard the story differently, but podcasting was invented in Boston. And that you may, if you're old enough, people of a certain age will remember Chris Lydon. Who used to Christopher be on, Lydon. Christopher Lydon was yep. on, he's still on radio now, N- right? NPR or P- PBX PBI, or something. Yeah, I mean, he's still around. But he was the first one who had the idea of packaging like a talk show format in a file that you sent out. Yes. Right? And so the genesis of the whole podcasting thing, which is now international, you know, mm-hmm. uh, began right here in our fair city, as yes. the guys say. Yeah, and that's where the first PodCamp Boston was held there. PodCamp then went through, I think it was six years. Um, I was part of the organizing committee that took it to Western Mass. So Western Mass had 12 before they kind of, I won't say they have dissolved. They're just less interest because the information is now mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. prevalent. You can get it so many places. There are other conferences. There are other places you can still go. Um, but the PodCamp, there is still a PodCamp.org that you can go to and see if there are other conferences being held. The last time I had checked, I think the only place that a PodCamp had not been held on a continent was uh, Antarctica. Antarctica. Really? Yeah. But there had been a PodCamp, at least one or more, in on many continents. Well, and just, just to, to – the – there's a place called the Podcast Garage mm-hmm. in Cambridge where they have, for like 10 bucks or something, the initial 
education. It's like a two-hour course on how to make podcasts. And sure. they're encouraging people to come in and tell right. their stories. Yep. It's a wonderful thing. It is. It is. Yep. And uh, coincidentally, the essay, the lead piece that Pete Fasciano, our executive director at, at the studio, TV studio, et cetera, put out was uh, effectively touting uh, the programs and uh, the opportunities there. As part of our co- community service, these studios are available. If you've got an idea in terms of a show, we can do a cooking show, we can do a video show, you can do an audio show. If you've got an idea, it can be done. That's great. That's great. great. But dear listener, we're also here primarily to talk about (laughs) helping me make sense of climate. (laughs) Instead of wandering down memory lane about how great podcasting is, we were here for a purpose, right? We are here for a purpose. So we've we've got a bunch of things, and for the listeners, certainly uh, we started 36 episodes ago, or 37, 37 now, 36 now, whatever it is, a number of episodes ago, trying to look at clearly the... uh, World has some gold marks ranges. There's another COP conference coming, so there's do, they're doing that. Mass in its own place has a roadmap that we've talked with our state legislator, Rep, State Representative Jeff Roy, who's architected some of the pieces of legislation along that roadmap. So Mass can move that way. And we're here trying to, okay, what are we, 30-something thousand people here in Franklin, going to do? We've got solar panels on houses. We're doing some electric vehicles. There's now an Energized Franklin page that will help share some of those ideas as people then do a heat pump and learn and share, et cetera. But there's still a whole lot going on in the space, and that's where I thank you for helping guide me to make sense of what is going on in this space. It, 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 there is so much, and it's it's it can be overwhelming, but at the same time, if you dip your toe into it and get some of the buzzwords, it becomes less intimidating. You just said COP. Um, people may not know what the COP28 is, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. I mean, that's the Conference of the Parties. It's an acronym, and it dates back. They've now having the 28th annual conference where people get together and talk about climate change from the U.N., right? So it demystifies this whole thing of what—but mm-hmm. what, what, there's lots. So there is lots, but I think the issue is taking it in bite sizes, taking the issues one by one, just familiarizing yourself with the articles, because that's— because that's all you can do, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's just right. It's, unless you have a, and a PhD program in climate science and communication and all that kind of stuff, all you can do is try and keep up. But you do, if you're conscious of it, uh, and choose your sources wisely, right? Which is typically not certain. Not guaranteed. Channel. Not guaranteed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you have to you have to pay attention. I mean, so for example. We could do a show, and maybe you should do a show about where do we get, inf- where do I get information, right. right? Right. I mean, one of the great places, the Guardian uh, newspaper in England, ironically enough, has a fantastic American coverage of climate. Uh, there are there are books that come out, I mean, there's all kinds of ways to learn about stuff. But that, yeah, I mean, I think the goal here is to demystify what's going on, so mm-hmm. that it's not that people can understand how it affects so fundamentally how our lives are the war what did they what did Molly even say the warp and woof of our lives right this is 
climate is built into everything we do because it affects the food supply. It affects, you know, I mean, everything, everything, mm-hmm. everything. And so, well, even coming out of the Thanksgiving weekend, uh, according to TSA, they checked over what 2.8 million passengers. Now, fortunately, the weather cooperated on that Sunday after Thanksgiving. So. But I mean, so, but so th- that's a risk because now you got 2.8 mil- million people trying to go from point to point, and if the weather doesn't cooperate, and, that and, that really ripples a whole lot of absolutely. problems. And, what, and they, they, I mean, that is an example of the kind of climate issues that we face that, in a sense, are cascading, hmm. right? So, if you have a big, let's say, Christmas time comes, there's another 2.8 million people in the air. And there's a horrible uh, blizzard in New York City, right? And and just the systems are more vulnerable, right? Even if climate hadn't changed, the systems are more complex and more vulnerable. Climate change is making them worse. And there are, again, we, I hope we get to some of the reports, but there are cascading effects that there's these knock-on. First, a big storm comes, then like a second storm comes, and now... People's houses are gone, and they can't recover economically, and then you get political mm-hmm. instability. These things feed on themselves, and there are, I mean, again, there are, there are a lot of buzzwords, but there's proximate causes and what are called distal causes, mm-hmm. right? So if you have, you can make arguments that certain parts of the world are at war with each other and say, why are they at war? Well, the, the, the farmers are fighting the herders. Okay. But the distal cause that's way in the background is that climate change has desertified the places drier, right? So now the the people are fighting over the Access water, to water, basically, and right? arable land, and arable land. But the, the, when you wind way back, it's climate that was sort of a again. So mm-hmm. there you go. Yes, it's, it's a good thing to know about. Yes, and we probably should do a separate episode just on that misinformation and disinformation and trying to find legitimate sources because that's part of what I've done. Uh, There was a three-part course that I taught at the Senior Center. It was already prepared by Media Literacy and uh, the Newslit Project, I think, in particular. So I just took that and then helped them work through it so I could help explain because that's what I do as well, is I, I can only share legitimate sources. Right. And I'm creating a lot of the legitimate sources by my own presence in the meetings. So that adds some legitimacy to it. Because I do read some articles and it's like, what meeting were they at? That doesn't sound like the meeting I was at. Well, it's funny you say that because <laughs> oftentimes you go to something that is newsworthy, an event that is newsworthy, mm-hmm. and you walk out and you read the report in the paper and say, Exactly what you said. Wait a minute. That that was not the event I went to. Yeah. I mean, there was a there was a some sort of I don't think it was a climate event in downtown Boston. There was some sort of event in the in the during the reign of the former guy, right? And I was there. There were fifty thousand people. Everything was cool. We all went home. Everybody's happy. On the news, though, were ten people near the. The, the Park Street tea stop that got in a fight, right? That's what was on the news, right. as if there were 50,000 people running amok in the common. Mm-hmm. Right? So. right. Yeah. If it leads, it bleeds. Yeah. And unfortunately, that gets down to that slippery slope of the decline of media because they need money and they're going that way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Yes. Well, let's talk climate for a minute. Climate. Let's, let me, let's, so there are two big useful ideas 
to carry around, to have in your back pocket that these things exist. Right? You're probably not going to refer to them very often, but it's when they pop up in the media, it's good to know about. Mm-hmm. The first one that we could talk about is a report that was released earlier this week, actually the day, a couple days before Thanksgiving. Okay. Okay. So this is called the National Climate Assessment. And what if you Google it, it's NCA5. Because all these things have numbers now, mm-hmm. right? So it's the fifth in the, the series? Fifth, the fifth in the series. So this is a report that is released every four years, right, once during each presidential term. Uh, since this, this is the fifth, clearly, it was established sometime in the late 1990s, right? Mm-hmm. This thing was kicked off. The Congress passed a bill, said that the federal, the executive branch will release a report every four years detailing the state of the climate in the United States mm-hmm. and what's going on, right? And that was supposed to be a tool for people to uh, to take action and know what's going on. Right. Big controversies about this during the Bush administration. Mm-hmm. There were, in fact, all kinds of accusations that they were suppressed. They were like editing the text, taking out certain words, you know, taking out will happen and putting in, you know, might happen, happen, could happen, all that kind of stuff, softening all of the language. So this goes back as far as the um, as far as the Bush administration, where the first, second, third uh, reports were released. The report under the former guy. Uh, was released on Black Friday of 2019, I guess. Mm-hmm. In other words, they very clear, as you well know, if you want to bury a news story, you release it Friday afternoon at 5. If you really want to bury a story, you release it at 5 o'clock Friday on Black Friday afternoon, right? And so they released a rep- the the uh, the former administration released the fourth climate assessment and tried to bury it in and lot of controversy around it, although that the scientists in that instance made fairly strong statements, even though the executive branch didn't want those statements. Tried in, editing, tried to, softening. Blah, 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 blah. So now we come to the Wednesday before Thanksgiving 2023, right? Biden administration, for all its ups and downs, put out a very strong National Climate Assessment, basically saying all the same stuff we already know. But again, mm-hmm. I mean, how many times can you say we're extremely concerned, right? You, right. It, be, your ears begin to come numb to it, right? right? But they're just in passing, we say we we broached, I think it was the, the two degree above industrial warming, two degree C. We sort of went there briefly and then dropped back down. Um, anyway, this report, the National Climate Assessment Number 5, came out with much ballyhooing from the Biden administration. And it's a good report. It's intended to be a report that helps people drill down where they want to. Mm-hmm. We'll put the link in the notes. You can go look. Personally, I find it more, just as a sort of a gentle critique, it's kind of built for the Internet. So all of the pages collapse and open up and you can hide things and it's sort of unclear whereas I'm a dumb old guy I want a PDF right with numbered pages so you pages. can see every single page you can go through I want to go back to page 22 no no whereas this is all click and expand and contract but it's still in all it's a very good report it hits all the right stuff I want to, you don't even want to try to explain all the stuff that was in the report but what they did one of the things that's in the report 
is to talk about divide the country into regions, mm-hmm. right? And then talk about what what's the key insights? What do the people in that region need to know? So, of course, one of the regions is Hawaii. One of the regions is the Northwest, the South, blah, blah, blah. The Northeast, okay, is defined not in a way that I would define it, <laughs> being sort of a chauvinistic Massachusetts guy. The nor- Northeast of the United States is defined basically from West Virginia up to Maine. That chunk of the, the, the upper right-hand quadrant of the country, mm-hmm. right? That covers right. a lot of ground. That covers an awful lot of ground. An awful lot of ground. From the Chesapeake Bay, right, which is, I hadn't known, it was the largest estuary in the country, the yep. Chesapeake Bay, right? And that is fed, even in New York. Chesapeake Bay, the, even larger than the Mississippi? Well, as an estuary. As an estuary. As an estuary. Okay. As a, as a, yeah. uh, okay. as a, which I guess if I was a geologist, there's like some sort of brackish part. There, there are some right? determinations yeah. there. That, yeah. Exactly. What we, makes it an estuary? Yeah. Right? Go, if you go, listeners want to get some extra credit, go Google and send us the links later. <laughs> but it be, so so what I thought, it just we'd talk, talk briefly about the key insights in the National Climate Assessment for the Northeast Right? And they're actually pretty good. I mean, I'll tell you up front, one of them says a lot of good action happening in the Northeast, particularly in, you know, the New England area. Mm-hmm. Right? A lot of uh, progress made, and we're kind of a bellwether for the country, right? So the things that—so take heart, dear listener. You're in—we're in a leading position. We get to make all the mistakes first, right? <laughs> and other people can learn from them, but we're headed—we're doing, doing the good things. So— the, the the of the several um, key messages, what they the first one is, and I'll just read it. They say the chronic chronic impacts of extreme weather are shaping both adaptation and mitigation efforts. So buzzwords, mitigation in the climate context means reducing carbon dioxide. Right. Uh, we mitigate the carbon dioxide levels. Adaptation means we're going to build a seawall. Right. We're going to do something to protect right. ourselves from the badness that's coming. Adjusting to it in some way. Adjusting to it in some way. And you can get yourself into a moral panic about if you start adapting before you mitigate, are you just giving up? Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a whole, mm-hmm. whole, whole set of things around there. But th- they're saying that the New England, I'm sorry, the, the northeast of the United States continues to get hit with extreme weather events. And yes. the kind of extreme weather events that we are going to see tend to be too much water. And we've seen that, right? We, we have. We've talked about this now. Again, so, dear listener, you know, we start connecting dots because we've touched on all these things more than once. I mean, Vermont had a deluge, right? And, and Eight to ten inches it, of rain in a matter of hours. and Right down those green mountains and right out, right through the middle of town, right? Yep. Uh, and so there's all this, um, um, we are vulnerable to that. We are less vulnerable to drought because of the uh, uh, the moisture in the water, but you, it's not like it's not like with California from a drought perspective, right? right? So we're going to get a lot of water, and the other thing, we the whole region is going to be impacted by a sea level rise, yes. right? Which we yeah. see in Boston <clears throat> now. Mm-hmm. Right? We're already talking about high tide flooding in Boston. All these cities are in are in mm-hmm. trouble, and so these are the kind of things that are. Um, important in this region. Mm-hmm. And they make reference to nature, the one I like, the report makes reference to nature-based solutions, right, which are now, in some sense, berms, floodplains. Mm-hmm. They don't 
And and just just think, dear, dear listener, South, yeah, what's it? Uh, seaport, the seaport in Boston. Sure. I don't know where that's going to be in fifty years. <laughs> you just look at it and say, "Oh my God!" Right? Well, Back Bay itself was originally Back Bay because it was the bay, and then it filled in. So thereby, it is vulnerable. It is still, at best, at sea level. So if we're getting a sea level rise, there's an awful lot of real estate that will rapidly come underwater, and not just by the courthouse, and not just by South Boston. Right. I mean, all the store drive will be, you know. So what's interesting, so what is interesting in the National Climate Assessment, where we just got the first impact, uh, you know, first insight, they, they have this time, for the first time, included in the release something called Climate Times Art. And so they have artwork built into the report. Ooh. It's really, so the, and it, I tried to download one of the pictures. I couldn't quite download it because I'm too stupid. But, I mean, there's artwork built in. But the reason I thought of it is because one of the pieces of artwork was a picture of an installation in the back bay showing where the marshes were and how. Mm-hmm. And so it's like a short-term installation art of where the water is going to come in and how it used to be a marsh, what it's right. going to look like. Right. And so if you're in – this comes back to the whole thing about there's so many different ways into climate – the art associated the if you begin to look at these impacts it will inspire art and people are doing it if you like art take a peek if for no mm-hmm. other reason than to critique the art in this report well an art in its general role one of the roles at least other than satisfying the artist is to ask the hard questions in a different way i mean we can ask the question, you know, can you do this? And people are going to say yes or no. But if you depict it in some form of art, whether a visual image or a depiction or a musical piece, there are many ways to bring that issue to light. And maybe some of those are going to finally, you know, slap upside the head and say, we need to do something. (laughs) Absolutely. And art is pretty profound. When you have some sort of masterwork it resonates with people. Mm-hmm. I went today. We went to see a movie called uh, "The Holdovers." If you get a chance to see it, I, I enjoyed it. But I mean, there's a reference to to Picasso's Guernica painting, Guernica, right? Yeah, which again is like just it's, the horrors it, of it, war. It just crystallizes everything for people, and mm-hmm. so that kind of art is coming, and people are processing what they see. Anyway, blah 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 blah. Yeah. Look at the report about the art. Okay. The next key insight for the New England, for the Northeast, is that ocean and coastal impacts are driving adaptation to climate change. So now you're having warming waters. Uh, you know the lobsters are all moving to mm-hmm. to the fish populations fish will change populations. their migrations, et cetera. Yep. And so, uh, sort of wetland restoration, which a lot of people talk about, uh, is is uh, an important tool here in the Northeast, mm-hmm. both for capturing carbon, buffering against the changes that are coming. Sure. And, you know, so everyone in New England has seen a salt marsh, right? Mm-hmm. But as the sea level rises, the salt marsh is brackish water, right? So what's a salt marsh? It's, got, it's a big flat area right near the ocean. There's that kind of eelgrass that grows up mm-hmm. in it, yep. right? The water, the tides come in and out, but it's brackish water, kind of fresh, kind of salty, certain kind of oysters and stuff live in that. 
as the sea levels rise, the salt water penetrates the salt marsh. The salt marsh goes away. Salt water penetrates underneath the trees at the end of the salt marsh. The trees start to die, mm-hmm. but you don't have the time to build up the salt marsh. So blah, blah, blah. Anyway, there's lots of um, coastal impacts in the northeastern portion of the United States to deal right. with. And we can recall back, uh, we had an episode with our conservation agent, Brekeli Goodlander, earlier this year. And she mentioned, and that it blew us away at the time because we were thinking trees were kind of the carbon capture kings, and yet that brackish water, the swampish water, actually has, what, 800 times the impact on carbon capture. So, uh, yeah, that kind of, and we have it here in Franklin. So Delcart and uh, the ponds, mm-hmm. et cetera, mm-hmm. they're, they're Beaver Pond. These are all good places to be from a carbon capture. And they provide a huge sort of social service, right, that you don't appreciate until it's gone. Mm -hmm. Yes. So the next next key insight for the northeastern part of the country from this climate assessment is that there are – that the – I'll just read it. It says, disproportionate impacts highlight the importance of equitable – policy choices. And what the point they're making is that in the northeastern section of the United States, compared to, say, North Dakota, mm-hmm. right, there are populations that are very vulnerable for a, a, a wide variety of reasons to the impacts of climate change. Sure. Excess heat, which I guess I, I forgot to mention before, heat waves are going to be a big deal for us, right, yes. in addition to water. And, of course, if you live in a red-lined uh, urban center you're going to be 10 degrees hotter than everybody else, mm-hmm. right? And that's just unfair. And so the – and it's a, it's a two-edged sword is that having an equitable policy brings everyone along, right? You, you, and, and, but at the same time, there is a, a multiplier of good things that happen when you help everybody. Mm-hmm. And that in the northeastern section of the United States, and I would argue in particular in Massachusetts and in New England, there's a real sense that the um, – an equitable solution is the one that's going to save us all. Yes. And the way I would put it is that, you know, we're going to win or lose the fight against climate change in our poorest neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Right? They cannot be abandoned because their carbon counts just like everybody else's. Right? right. We all need to help them. And if they are taken care of, if the neighborhoods that have historically borne the weight of all of the junk that nobody else wants, right, if those neighborhoods are treated fairly and a part of the process that protects everyone else because everyone else up the chain uh, up the uh, you know is can take care of themselves right so focus a focus on the least like the the the, the, the most vulnerable among us guarantees success for all of us mm-hmm. and, and there's real motion here and yeah that that boat that tide will rise the boats for all of us right. as opposed to just letting somebody you know take the brunt of it no we can't do that yeah i mean yeah i mean having having I mean, we are the commonwealth after all for a reason <laughs> yes yes and so so but it's good to say that here in massachusetts and i think in much of the northeast this is taken very seriously and mm-hmm. it's a good thing so dear listener it is a good thing there are reports of uh, national grid offering discount electric rates to lower-income customers. Mm-hmm. There's a re- reports about how are we going to upgrade all the tenements and all the buildings. You know, there's thousands, not, there's hundreds of thousands of buildings that need to be upgraded, 
and they uh, uh, it's not clear how they, we're going to do that because the people in them are either renters or may not have the money to do it. So mm-hmm. what are we going to do? Right. I mean, we're all in a lifeboat together. <clears throat> okay, so there's a, another point, key insight for the northeastern section of the United States is that climate action plans are now being implemented. We've had Jeff Roy on this show, right? Mm-hmm. He's a leader, right? Salute. Uh, but, I mean, New York, Rhode Island just passed a plan. Many, Most of the New England states have committed to reducing uh, uh, their carbon emissions by some date certain. I think all of the Northeast, except for West Virginia, is part of the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, it says, which is a great thing invented right here in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Right? It was... Uh, it seems like it's now a historical fact, but it was an, a touch-and-go thing in 2010, no. right? But all that stuff, in, in that's a good message for people probably listening to this podcast, that the things that we're doing here are the right things. We're leading in the right direction. We've got to keep doing it. And, of course, multiply by 10 everything, right? Mm-hmm. Because you can't... You can't uh, more, better, <clears throat> faster. More, better, faster. And that, that's the crushing thing, right? No, no matter what policy or program is proposed or even enacted, the climate activist has to say, thank you very much. Now, please do 10 times more. Because mm-hmm. we're nowhere near the level we have to be at right. because uh, it's out there. Yeah. Uh, so then the final point that they make for the n- northeastern section of the country is that uh, implementation of these climate p- plans requires financing. Back to the money. Back to the money. Always comes back to the money. Prioritization. What are we going to prioritize? Who's going to pay for it? I mean, we've had Jeff Roy on the show talking about green banks. Mm -hmm. There's the the uh, Inflation Reduction Act at the federal level. There's money. Uh, But I think the report is arguing that communities, businesses, nonprofits all have to get in the game. I think that's the goal. So what many of these programs are doing is trying to and you'll it's it sounds funny but the the government will offer some money as long as private people uh private concerns add money to the pot right. so then you leverage the, the government money yeah. you put in a billion dollars and you get nine billion of other people but the federal government's there makes everybody feel good starter incentives, incentives etc safety and, and you get more money to do the right thing so there you go i mean the the, the report those are the reports of the things that matter for the Northeast, there's a ton of stuff in the report. A lot of stuff about equity, which is really this whole issue of equity I keep coming back to, is really important because it is the crux. Right? We cannot just um, put solar panels on the roofs of people that can afford it. Mm-hmm. And it's not a solution. Right? No. You can't, no. And, and it may, you may not like it, but we have to, uh, we have to bring everybody along or else we're, we're, we're going to yeah. succeed. So. There you go. Yeah. We've talked about social justice and the equity of the approaches in a number of our episodes. And it's a recurring theme, dear listener, Phil. You've been here for a while. You've heard that. And here's another report pointing out that, oh, by the way, we need to really do so. (laughs) So that's the National Climate Assessment. It's, It's the latest in a sequence of reports that have come out. You can trace through them. Uh, uh, This one is a good one. It is the Biden administration is pushing it. We should be happy with it. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing. And then follow along to do what it is calling for us to do, which at a local level, we need still to, as we've talked in prior episodes, where it seems like the right hand's doing this, but the left hand's going that way. There's still some rubbers to the road that we need to 
iron out. It's not going to be perfect. We all know that. But as long as we are most of us going in the right direction, then we can figure out how to get there. Right. And I think that part of the service of, dear listener, you listening to this podcast is just kind of normalizing this discussion. Right. It, it's not crazy, crazy stuff. I mean, this is stuff we have to talk about. You have to have a little bit of fluency in it. And it's easy to get that little bit of fluency to understand what the issues are, why it's important. And that goes a long way towards mm-hmm. making it politically palatable to make the choices that we have to make. Right. And that's where I think the right choices and the right information, uh, discerning what's disinformation, discerning some, unfortunately, from the fossil fuel companies, They've had uh, an axe to grind for a number of years and still do and are still out there trying to create some misinformation, disinformation, which then causes confusion and then slows us down. And slowing us down is not going to help because, oh, by the way, the climate changes are here and then they're becoming more rapid and more uh, extreme. And we we need to prepare. Faster, better, sooner, quicker. <laughs> so that's that's it. So that's the national climate assessment. So that's one. So we that's said one. Were, there were two, right? There so were two. We're, we're, so what's the, number two? Number two is this COP thing, the COP, the Conference of the Parties. Okay. Who's the parties? That's all Good of question. us, right? Well, so the Conference of the Party. So this very quickly. This dates back to 1991. George H. W. Bush flew to Rio to sign the Rio. Agreement. We were all, and he famously said, um, "Oh, I can't even remember what he famously said." So I'll put that aside. <laughs> I mean, B- Bush was on board in 1991, right? What fell out of that 1991 agreement in Brazil was that there would be a yearly meeting of the parties that signed up to the Brazil thing, uh, right? So that's there's the a conference of the parties. The parties are typically are the nations that belong to the United Nations, right? All of the all of the yeah, all all the parties to this international treaty were countries. Every year there would be a conference. Right? Mm-hmm. This chunked yep. along, chunked along, chunked along, and so the conference of the parties is the mechanism by which the UN is trying to process climate stuff. There's a bunch of words you probably have heard, but don't realize were COP events. Mm-hmm. So it's the Kyoto Accords. Okay. Right? That was a conference of the parties in Kyoto where the Japanese hammered out this agreement, right? So the Kyoto Accords were, and of course the United States famously walked away from it, you know, shed your tears later, right? They walked, we walked away from it, but the Kyoto Accords were there. Then in 2009, there was a big, big deal in Copenhagen, mm-hmm. right? So there was yep. the Copenhagen meetings in 2009, which was turns out to be a bust, right? That was supposed to be the big time everyone got together and made a decision, and it fell apart. Yeah. Uh, at the time, there were complaints <clears throat> that Obama had not flown over, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Lots, and, 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 of course, at these international conferences of the parties, the COPs, there's lots and lots of corporate people floating around the edges, it's mm-hmm. all, and there's a lot of fossil fuel companies floating around these things. And, in fact, you can argue have taken over the COP process but put that aside. The next COP you didn't realize was a COP is the Paris Accords. So oh, the, yes, the, the famous Par- Paris the Accords. The famous Paris <laughs> Accords, which are the basis for negotiations today, were from a conference of the party in December of 2015 where everyone signed and people were in tears. And it was and the, that conference of the party, the Paris Agreement, if you're not really sure what the Paris Agreement means, it was an agreement among the nations of the world that— Instead of taking 
uh, top-down command as to how much they must, each country must reduce their carbon emissions. The genius of the Paris Accord was to say that each country will volunteer what they can do. Mm-hmm. And at bottom least we'll up, get going. Bottom up. Bottom up, yeah. right? And the so expectation— that was, it took five years from 2010 to, or 2009 to 2015. To well, there were intermediate conferences. Intermediate, but in line. order to get to the final it, agreement, in order to get back it took from, time it took to get time. there. Yeah, and so now, and so what? What you'll hear is is in these COPs is what's called stock taking, and out of the Paris Accords, they said that every five years, all the parties in the conference of the party are going to come back with and say how much good stuff they did by reducing their carbon, how much more they're going to do next time, mm-hmm. right? right? And so that has been part of the 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 the, the process. Okay, now fast forward to this year. So this is the twenty eighth conference of the parties. It's being held in a little place called Dubai. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've heard of it. Uh, but Dubai is in the United Arab Emirates. Of course, it's a petro state. Right. right? So if that doesn't sort of make you do a rut-row kind Ray, of thing, Raise some eyeballs. Raise some raise eyeballs. Eyeballs. Wait a minute. How come, how come those guys are running the show? Because each country that hosts the COP is basically in charge of negotiating the outcome. That's their responsibility. Yeah. Um, and there have been complaints that that the people running the conference of the parties this year are actually trying to sell Abu Dhabi oil investments to the to different nations that come, which is just completely anathema to the whole thing. I mean, there's various sort of human rights complaints because last year the COP was in Egypt, oh, right? right? Which was which is anyway. So the conference of the party is going to begin this. Thursday. So we're recording now on the 27th. Thursday the 30th, the COP begins. You probably see it on the news as a little blip, like a two-second thing that says, oh, Biden didn't go to the, did mm-hmm. not go to the Conference of the Parties or blah, blah, blah. But the big issue on the table at the Conference of the Parties now, this year, is something called um, a negotiation about loss and damage. Okay. Okay. So what does loss and damage mean? Loss and damage is defined, it's used by the United Nations to describe harms inflicted by climate change that go beyond what people can adapt to. So a major event. Well, suppose you live in in Tuvatu, Mm -hmm. all right? Something that you can't get paid for is when your island is under, when your whole country is underwater, Right. right, so there's loss and damage there. There's a whole cultural, right? The loss and damage can be cultural. Mm-hmm. It can be in how your country makes its living, mm-hmm. right? It's 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 the impact on typically countries in the global south, however you want to define that, mm-hmm. that haven't really done anything to cause climate change, but they are the ones bearing the brunt and the damage. The, the island nations are the main example, are a great example, right? If your home disappears, if, if Franklin was under 10 feet of water, we would consider that a loss and, and, and damage, right? Mm-hmm. And so the question is, who's going to pay for this? How do we... And uh, the idea is not so much to make recompense, but to somehow provide funding to these countries that have no other funding to begin to build, to to do the adaptation, which we said is not the same as mitigation, but to put in, um, you know, renewable energy and to start strengthening their social infrastructure to handle what's coming. Again, we say that, you know, someplace, 
I don't know, you go to Bangladesh and tornado, I mean, a hurricane comes through and then a disease comes through and there's no health care. Everything is cascading on itself. Mm-hmm. You have to build up the society. Sure. Right. And so the, the, what the argument now is at this conference of the parties is who's going to pay? Now, if you rewind 10 years or so, all the rich countries like the United States promised that we would put in $100 billion by the year 2020. Mm-hmm. Of course, it never quite happened, <laughs> right? And so uh, the debate is about loss and damage, which is about some way of not so much paying people to be quiet or guilt money or anything, but it's trying to provide ways for countries that are at risk of bad things to improve their lot now. And one of the interesting, then you get it gets deeper and deeper. Is that one of the one of the reasons that many countries in the global south do not have any money to pay for adaptation to build a seawall or to mm-hmm. do anything? Right? right. One of the reasons they don't have any money is because they took out loans in the past from the World Bank, and they owe all of their money in interest to the World Bank. Okay. Right. And so one idea would be that the World Bank simply forgives loans to some of these places so that that money that was going to the World Bank as an interest payment could be, stay in the country and do some of it. Now, that's, not a, that's kind of a blunt tool, but there's also ideas that a, a country could be, under this loss and damage idea, you could get paid money for preserving your rainforests, mm. right? Now, that right. gets tricky, Right? It's very difficult to do. How do you do. preserve that? How do you yeah. preserve it? How do you account for it? How do you put... But these are the tough issues that are coming up in the COP28 right now being discussed in Abu Dhabi, along with a few oil deals on the side. Uh, but put that mm-hmm. aside. We hope that there's good uh, discussion there. Well, it sounds like this goes to the heart of kind of the equitable and justice idea of this. Clearly, there are some richer countries in the world of which, oh, by the way, we're one of them. We can't deny that. And there are some, frankly, poorer countries that are in the world. And if we all have to deal with climate and some can deal with it better than others, it behooves those that have to help those who don't have. And how do you negotiate that? How do you make that somewhat equitable, even in the exchange? Because, uh, yeah, it's... That's going to be a rather interesting discussion. And it's one that's gone on for a long time because even back in the 1990s, there was discussion about historical responsibility. Mm. So the United States is extremely rich compared to most of the rest of the world, has also emitted most of the carbon that's in the atmosphere, dear listener. I mean, unfortunately, there's a double whammy on us, right? right? China's catching up. Absolutely, China's emitting a lot. China is, in fact, may, may be emitting more than we are not on a per capita basis, but total, blah, 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 blah. But the fact is that Europe and the United States have a long historical legacy of taking advantage of fossil fuels, became rich based on it. And it is galling, I think, to many of the less developed countries, which is a weird term, but I mean, many other countries, that we should not turn around and say, oh, yeah, you have to tighten your belt, right, mm. and not develop as quickly. Or you can't take care of your people. You can't build that coal plant because that would be global warming. Right, and so you can see where the negotiations get very contentious, uh, and people's lives, their countries, their way of life is at stake. Sure. So there you go. That's loss and damage at the conference of the parties. It'll probably get underplayed in most of the TV media, right? Because it's not sexy and glamorous. Mm-hmm. Right. But 
when you see that stray headline, dear listener, <laughs> take a look and maybe some of those buzzwords will be in it. Yeah, and it sounds like given the discussion has been on for so long, there may not be an agreement this time around either since we're, what, four, three years late in terms of making the prior commitment. <laughs> so I read an article that said there was, there was an agreement in principle between the different countries, which was taking on before the conference started, right. by November 4th of this of last month, well, this month. This uh, month, yeah. This November 4th, they came to an agreement that they might be able to s- smooth everything over and get something through. But there's a lot of moving parts in that mm. compromise. And you know for sure and certain the, the United States won't have signed up to make any financial commitments. They'll be like, the parties will do their best and, you know, we'll promise to think good thoughts and mm-hmm. you know, hope for the best and blah, blah, blah. But there'll be, there may be some kind of agreement. Whether or not it has the teeth that are required to do the right things is less clear. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that's, that's the suspense. That's right. what we're watching. Yeah. And that still is impactful for us at a local level. Clearly, we're a little Franklin in Mass in New England and in the USA but also impactful by what happens in the world. I mean, we are not isolated. We cannot live alone. People work around the world, even from virtual positions. Uh, the We've already seen very clearly that the uh, supply stream, supply chain, is interconnected everywhere you go, right? So th- we, we cannot stand alone. We have to stand together in order to do this. And yeah, that's going to be the real challenge. How are we going to get? And if not this year, then it has to be some year we do reach an agreement. Right. Right. Yeah. So the the, the conference of the parties, uh, Dubai, next week. Mm-hmm. We'll Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Yes. Well, thank you for highlighting those two key pieces today amongst others, and we could still have talked probably (laughs) longer on some other things that are also climate-related, but I think those are two big, worthy chunks that, yeah, we've touched on aspects of them at many times in various uh, of our episodes, but, yeah, those are two timely and uh, good topics for now. When my son was in third-grade math program here in Franklin— I think they call it the spiral method, right, where they would teach a concept just the beginning, and then they'd go and do something, and then they'd come back a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So we're on this spiral where each time we talk about something, it's a little bit more sophisticated, right, because you begin the, the, the vocabularies there. You say, oh, yeah, we, I heard about that sometime. Mm-hmm. And there are very few absolutely new topics, right? right. We're just kind of reporting on this ongoing slog mm-hmm. that, that our society will be involved in for the next Hundred years, mm-hmm. right? And 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 what is there some line about planting trees that only your children will see come to fruition? Kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That's that's the stage we're in right now. Yeah, but we do need to plant the trees if we especially want our children to have some trees. <laughs> so again, thank you, and thank you, listeners. Um, come back. We will have more of these. There's the, this particular topic seems to be never ending. So I don't know if we're going to end this. We're going to keep going as long as I'm continuing to have fun and we'll meet in the studio and we'll have more toys to play with and more fun here. And if you have any other questions out, out there, listeners, certainly our info is available in the show notes and in the links. You can send us a question. We'll address it in a future episode. 
So thank you thank again. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. This has been, as usual, a blast. Okay. Fun. And again, quick listener reminder, we do this because Franklin matters. We are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. This podcast is my public service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. For additional information, please visit franklinmatters.org. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me directly at suresteve at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clark and the group East of Shirley. The piece is titled Ernesto Manana, copyright Michael Clark and Tintype Tunes in 2008 and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. By the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.